Imagine for a moment we live in a world where everyone and every company knows about their transformative purpose, and together we are creating a better world than how we found it. Today, and thank you for listening to the Transformative Purpose Podcast. I'm your host Aaron. In every episode, we talk to people who are changing our world for the better. I believe positivity brings out the best in us, and this podcast is all about inspiring our listeners to discover your north star, so that together we can co-create a brighter future for the next generation. If you want to receive updates about future episodes, remember to subscribe to this channel. And to learn more about transformation, you can also pick up a copy of my new book, Reborn Digital, in major bookstores in Hong Kong. Today, we're going to touch on a somewhat emotional topic: driving DEI, diversity. Equity and inclusion in organization. Our guest today is Sudesh Devasena Bathy. He is the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Menu Life, a leading international financial services group. Sudesh is responsible for driving diversity and all-inclusion global agenda for Asia, as part of the global DEI organization. Sudesh grew up in Malaysia and is passionate about business and cultural change. He has led major transformational programs at AXA. Merrill Lynch and HSBC. His work and achievements are recognized by many of his peers. He was a winner of 2019 LGBT Plus Inclusion Award and was also featured as one of the top 50 LGBT Plus role model executives. Welcome to the Transformative Purpose Podcast, Sudesh. Hey, hey, Aaron. How are you? Thanks for having me here. Very well, thank you. <laughs> how are you doing? It's good. You know, it's a wet day in Hong Kong. I mean, it's been raining seriously. In summer. Oh yeah, we just got flat rain this morning. I know. It's like my my kids were stuck at at home, and I'm in the office. There you go. <laughs> Thank you so much for making time for this podcast. I'm very excited to talk to you about this elephant in the room and uh, to get educated on this important topic. First of all, congratulations! I realize Menu Life has received many DEI awards and recognitions this year. There's a Canada's Best Diversity Employers, Bloomberg Gender Equity. Sorry, equality index, and the list goes on. And it must have been a phenomenal experience working for an organization where you're receiving such strong support. You know what? That's the thing, Aaron. Winning awards is one thing, but uh, actually being part of an organization that supports and and drives those changes and does it because they want to do it, not because they have to do it. So there's a clear difference. So of course, uh, if, if you notice, the world has changed drastically over the past couple of years, especially since last year in North America. And I keep telling people about this: diversity, equity, and inclusion. Whilst it is on the agenda of many organizations, it is still a reactive response. It is reactive because the world is changing, so you need to react. And when I say many times, like I say, it is a very emotive topic. Somebody had to die in the U.S. for people to wake up, right? If you put it that way, very bluntly, somebody has to lose a life. For us to wake up, somebody has to do some something bad has to happen in the world for us to wake up. And I think it's nothing about the brands or the companies. It is about sometimes we humans we are very responsive and reactive. But having said that, many organizations took that liberty and that change to wanting to, you know what, enough is enough. We have to start opening up, and a lot of changes have taken place in North America through Black Lives Matter and Asian hate. And as you can see, it's slowly trickling down to Asia. Could be faster, but I think it's still slow. But it's getting there. 
Yeah, definitely. I think this whole DEI initiative is definitely a big topic. And I think it's also a topic where a lot of people are very sense. I guess they are very concerned. They, they don't really know how to deal with it or handle these conversations. We being Asians, I mean, we, have, we live in Asia. And uh, sometimes when people used to tell me, so Black Lives Matter happening in North America, Asian hate happening in North America. And many of my colleagues in there, they're asking me, has there been any impact in Asia? You know, whatever's happening globally, has there been any impact? Honestly, I'm sure you may be thinking the same. There hasn't been any impact. Yeah. We, <laughs> I think uh, where we live, we have a lot of first world problems. We have other problems to think about, right? So, and to think about it. So, yes, Black Lives Matter, we went out there. Thank you, thank you. Sorry, sorry to hear that. And then we forget. And then Asian hate happened. Oh, sorry, sorry. Oh, sorry to hear about that. And then we forget. Unless you have family in the US who may be experiencing such differences, you will not appreciate it. Because like you said, we have our own problems. And also because we are ignorant to discrimination because we feel discrimination doesn't exist in Asia. We are that ignorant. And if I go back, the Asian race is the most racist race on the planet. We have been racist for thousands of years, right? And I think this goes back a long, long while. And, I, and racism and differences comes from three main areas. One, socioeconomics. Socioeconomics in the sense that how rich you are, how poor you are. And that will put you on a scale on whether am I discriminatory towards you or not. So that is one element. The next is religion. Religion defines who is the majority and who gets the better and the bigger piece of the pie. And that already is a form of discrimination and racism, whether you are in it or you're out. You're in the group or you're out of the group. My religion is better than yours. So that is second. The third is more scary, is politics. So politics is very nicely tied to social economics and religion as well, depending on who votes for me, who is more popular, I tell you what to do. And with these three things, and covering this entire thing is our mom and dad, our parents, who have basically told us to just keep quiet and don't say anything. So when anything happens in terms of racism, don't say anything, just keep quiet and just put your heads down and just carry on working and living your life. So when we are, when the topic becomes so taboo and not to talk about, so we don't talk about it. So that is why when we don't talk about it, we think it doesn't exist, right? Yeah. When I was growing up, I just thought it's a norm to be discriminated. <laughs> so I, I was, <laughs> so I was born and raised in Hong Kong. I left for Australia when I was just before high school. You know, I've experienced many different forms of discrimination when I was in Australia. There was one time, so me and a group of uh, my friends, they were all born in, in Australia. They were all ABC. So we were lining up outside a, a nightclub. And when it got to our turn, we basically got declined from entering the nightclub and the bouncer said to us, a guy hired out the whole venue and he said, no, no Asians tonight. <laughs> there was no social media back then. I, I couldn't voice out to anyone. We just thought it's expected. <laughs> just part of growing up and part of our life experience. But that's exactly it. And that's what my parents told me also when I was growing up in Malaysia. And in Malaysia, whilst the people are not racist, I mean, I've had, I, I grew up with amazing Malay and Chinese friends, close friends. We can go to anybody's house and you are, this very family type environment, but because of the policies and the way how different types of people are being treated, so it becomes systemic racism. So we treat it as norm. It is okay to be indifferent. You be treated different is normal because you are living in this country that doesn't belong to you. 
So even though I was born in Malaysia, I was always treated as a visitor. That I don't have the benefits of living in my own country, which I was born in. And many people, you know, they make all those funny statements, go back to China, go back to India. But there's nowhere to go back to because we don't have family there. Where do I go back to? Where do, where do you belong? Where is the roots? I think this is a problem with many global people now, where you are so diluted, you don't belong to how you look like. I mean, people ask you to go back to Europe. Where in Europe? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm born in Singapore. Where do I go? You know? And so this is the thing. The globalization has happened in such a way that there's no where's home anymore. So Dash, you, you grew up in Malaysia and you now have an APEC role. You live in Hong Kong. With the societal issues that you have seen, I guess, sort of in the West versus Malaysia versus, you know, Asia, Southeast Asia, are there, and you, you also brought up there are three different types of, I guess, discrimination. Are they, with the challenges that we are facing, are they quite similar or do you see differences? Depending on where you live, uh, you have different challenges. And different kinds of learning, like in North America, the Black Americans have different challenges because they came in as slaves. So, and when they left slavery and they went into the population, then they had different challenges because they were still being treated as slaves. Whereas in Asia, we have always been travelers, right? I mean, uh, the, uh, the Chinese traveled everywhere to sell perfumes and opium and silk. And the Indians traveled everywhere to sell spices. So we were always traders who went to different countries and what ended up in the trading, we ended up settling down in those countries. Then along came the British and the British, basically they were in their colonization of the world. They brought along people from majority countries like China and India and took them everywhere in the world as their slaves to work in plantations, construction, don't pay them anything, just give them basic food and just, they were basically slaves. So this is what has been happening globally. So, but in Asia, because of our culture, we were told not to speak up. In North America, people speak up because that is not the culture. So I think there's a main difference. The problem is still the same. We are all different, but the way that we can speak up is different. Mm -hmm. So at what point did you go, this is not right and you want to do something about it? Was there a particular incidents or a conversation that you had with somebody which sort of pushed oh, wow, you so much uh, to <laughs> so what much you're doing happened. now so i mean apart from uh, growing <laughs> up in malaysia and already first-hand experience right uh not being given the fair treatment like everybody else but coming into hong kong was interesting when i sit in the train nobody will sit next to you yeah people sit, stand away Getting a place to stay, uh, the landlords won't give it to you because they say that when you cook, the food is smelly and the house becomes smelly, which is strange for me. So I do experience these differences. Uh, when you walk into certain shops, people give you that look. They think that you're going to steal their stuff, which doesn't make any sense. And I think that was small things because, I mean, I, I grew up with it, so it was normal for me. But then when I started seeing people from other minority communities also feeling the same, like people from the LGBT community who can't even speak up and have to hide who they love just because they don't want people to know because they don't want to be treated different or people who are disabled and they have to hide their disabilities because they don't want to be treated different. Then suddenly you start seeing this pattern and this pattern is very scary where people who are born into a situation that they couldn't control they are in a space where they couldn't control. And because it is beyond their control, they're being treated different. And 
to cover it all up, then I, I see my kids. And I don't want my kids to grow in a world where they have to be treated different. And I want my kids to be treated fair and equal and same. And I want all their friends to be fair and equal and same. So I think that's where the, the wake up call was, Aaron. To wake up and you know what? If the least I can do is to make that change from the role that I can play. So that is where I dwelt into this world. Yeah, I love how you brought it up. Uh, my, my kid has also become my, I guess, source of motivation. When you look at the little ones, you, you know, every day I think about, you know, what can we do as humans to make this world better? I don't want my, my kid. So there was a, some, something happened last night. So my kid is only two and a half. So we asked a guy to come and fix up the internet and uh, I offer the, the gentleman a cup of water and the mug was in black. My son asked me, what was the color of that mug? And I said, black. He's only two and a half, and he said, oh, that's the same as the color of, of his skin, of the gentleman, because it's a bit tan. It's amazing, like, how kids pick up these things. I mean, obviously, he didn't do it uh, on purpose, but I think as parents, uh, it's, it is our, our responsibility to prepare them with the right skills and right awareness uh, so that they can, you know, work with uh, other people and help us, you know, co-create a, a world for, for everyone. You know, yeah, that's absolutely well said, Aaron. I mean, kids are like sponges. Right, they they absorb everything that they see and they hear and they and you do. So we as parents, we can only control a certain percent of our time that they are in front of us. So when we are they are at home with us, we can teach them all the right things. But they are exposed to the world and they are exposed to friends and teachers and whoever. And somebody said something. I had one experience, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, this was in Hong Kong many years ago. I was in a building where I, I took onto the lift and a mom and her child got into the lift on the, one of the higher floors and were going down. And uh, the little girl, she looked at the mom and said in Cantonese, using a derogatory term used to call uh, Indians in Hong Kong. And, and they spoke in Cantonese. Uh, she told uh, mommy, this, this man is this color and told them, Acha, basically Acha. And the, the mother just didn't say anything and just kept quiet. And so I had to do my little mini education and I spoke to both of them in Cantonese. And I told them that this is not a nice thing to say and it is quite offensive. And uh, please uh, don't use this next time because it sets a very bad example. And I, but I said it very nicely in Cantonese. Uh, yeah, I speak the language a little bit, so it helps <laughs> in a way. To understand the context. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But they were shy and, they, and, and the mom got shy and walked out. But I, I didn't mean to do it, honestly. I felt bad after saying that, you know. But in a way, I also, I think, maybe I also educated the mom that this is the start. If your child is saying something and you do not address it then, then they think it's okay. I cannot agree more. There were instances where I heard the grandparents have taught their grandchildren to say, you know, guaylo, <laughs> which is not very respectful. And uh, you try to, but sometimes you got to pick your battle, you know, with your grandparents and older generation. You try to bring up this topic and <laughs> and, and sometimes they will go, what's, what's the issue? You know, I've been, I've been using this term for the last 60 years. No one has said anything about it. Well, exactly. When uh, with some, but when your when the grandparents or your parents actually go to the U.S., for example, and wait till when they hear somebody calling them in a funny name, so then sometimes it, it hits you, right? It's like I am being discriminated, and this is the thing about we in Asia, especially people in Hong Kong and all that, because we are sheltered. We are sheltered. We think we are majority, and we 
we lead and we are better than everybody else. But the moment we move into another country and we suddenly become the minority, and when you become the minority, when somebody treats you negatively, oh, how dare you say about that to me? I am being discriminated. But hello, when you were back home, how were you to others? Yeah. So this is it. It's, it's a classic uh, Maslow hierarchy, right? You get pushed down the list. <laughs> you don't often think about of safety course. and other things until, you know, it, it becomes a necessity. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely that. I mean, uh, but this is a wake-up call to many people, right? But if, if, but you say that, Adam, as we are all talking about, so now the, the hot topic is racism, but we still don't talk about people with disabilities. You know, I think that is another gray area that nobody talks about enough. And in terms of from hiring managers, from leaders to to giving opportunities to, again, people become disabled, not by choice. And and why do we treat them different? So I think this is some of the areas. I mean, uh, inclusion is such a huge topic. It is broad and it is not easy, honestly. And it's just that you need to put a bit of a level of humanity as you do things like this. What, you, what you've said uh, has been fascinating and we've been focusing a lot on, I guess, more of a societal level. Let's change our topic a bit more to what you do at a corporate level. For people who don't have exposure to, I guess, DEI, how would you describe uh, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion? Is it part of ESG, an extension of it, something separate? You mentioned about it's taken someone's lives for us to understand the importance of it. Uh, we are, the world at large is still very reactive to this topic. So just want to hear your view on this. So DEI is, okay, it's very new to many people globally. But the conversation of inclusion started many years ago through the gender movement where we were hoping to find equality between male and female uh, and women in leadership and from the Me Too movement. So we saw all those changes. If you want to have ample representation of gender on leadership and on the boards and then started off uh, five, six years ago on the LGBT front you wanted to ensure that who you love doesn't denote how you perform. So it doesn't matter. So we want to bring that kind of inclusion into space. So then we do have a lot of minorities that are slowly coming up from race and disability and thoughts and all kinds of stuff. But at the end of the day, the company that you want to build, the reason you're doing it is for your customers. If you put on your business lens for now. So whatever work that you do, whether you are in consulting, you are in retail, hospitality, manufacturing, the end user, the end customer, you cannot choose. You can't choose who uses your product, right? And because you don't know, they can be from different minority communities. So you can't control. You are building this product. But if you are seen to be monocolored, monogendered, mono whatever, the customer will see this and they can choose not to use your product. So you may be only selling to a particular set of people who look like you and act like you and think like you. But the world is big. The world is huge, and which means you have basically confined your customer space and your reach to the audience. So if as a company, you are seen to be more inclusive of all types of community members, all types of people, your customers will also notice this. And that helps in your brand building. So your brand, if you portray your brand as very inclusive, then your customers will see it and then they will buy it. So from a business angle, purely, that's one. From an employee angle, 
in terms of having the right skills in your organization, and you, when we all know it is very hard to find good people into your company. You, it's either sometimes through word of mouth, or even if you if you write the best looking JD, that does not guarantee you getting the best type of people onto the job. And because the skill pool is small, but if your company allows for all kinds of skills coming in, suddenly you open up an opportunity to getting skills that you wouldn't have noticed existed because you suddenly realize that, oh, wow, this particular community have this particular type of skills. I never knew. And then you hire them. So then now your participation is based on talent and skill, no longer about who or what you are. And then suddenly you see the ideas and the concepts being generated in the company is strong and powerful, which will then generate new services and new products, which will then generate new business through new communities, which you may not have sold before. And then it kind of creates a huge cycle and it's only, it's only good. There's nothing bad about it because you get more money at the end. Right. Okay. It's interesting you brought up the employee part. I I read a research from Glassdoor recently, and I think the latest poll shows that about 76%, four four in five people now consider uh, having a diverse workforce. It's something that they will consider when they're evaluating a company or evaluating an offer. Is that a trend that you're seeing in your organization as well? Same. Same trend, especially from the younger population. So the fresh graduates, the new younger generations. I think this is beyond Gen X, it's like Gen Z and Gen Ys who are now coming in, who are more tuned to the world because they are a bit more rebellious than us because we older folk. We have everything they the need. <laughs> exactly. We, we older folk, we go with the flow. You know, we just, we do as you're told and we just get stuff done. But the younger folk who are seeing all these changes in the world and they are a bit more rebellious and they and they want to ensure that they are being part of a bigger community of true passion you know for them the job and the career and the salary is not as important of doing the right thing and i've seen that in my case i'm sure you're seeing that in yours as well that they believe doing the right thing is more important than getting a salary so that is why in fact we have been doing a couple of interviews and we have realized that i'm part of hr and many of our candidates coming in asking these questions. And when they ask, when you when, when the recruiter asks, what question do you have for us? They always ask, tell us about your culture and your values. You know, and this is a standard question that the, so the, 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 the employees. <laughs> exactly. The candidates are asking us. So we have to be prepared. <laughs> the people who tend to ask these questions, they tend to come from sort of the middle middle class family or grasswood. Do, do you see a difference or is more universal? It's becoming more universal. I think it's just in the, the life of being in a university, right? So in the university, you mix with everybody. And I think now I see notice kids, whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter anymore. It's like you are in class, you are the same. You know, you can be rich with a silver spoon. So what? You're not popular enough like me, you know? <laughs> and if, if you fight for a cause, you know, I'm sure a lot of kids now, they want to go and clean the ocean and clean the river and they believe that using plastic is bad. And my, when my daughter sees me using a plastic straw, she gives me that evil <laughs> stare. Oh boy, uh, I get an evil Sorry, stare. I did that with my grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the, the kids these days, they don't see that anymore. And I think it's just wonderful. I think it's wonderful that we never had those opportunities with our parents and our grandparents, and ours do. Mm. <laughs> I think sometimes it goes back to really not taking our life for granted, right? Everything that we have today, you know, smart devices. I, I watched Lion King when I was 18. You know, my, my son is only two and a half. He's watching Lion <laughs> King on YouTube. 
<laughs> I know. <laughs> he doesn't need to worry about money. He doesn't need to worry about shelter. And, you know, I'm sure when he gets a little bit older, he can think about all the other, you know, contribution he, he can make to the society. <laughs> I mean, I, and that helps with our agenda in the company, right? So as you know what the community wants, you know what your customers want. Then when we define agendas and strategies in the company, and that's what we do. So we develop strategies for the organization. So as we have a business plan and business strategy, we need to have a people strategy. And the people strategy looking at the kind of skills and the talents that you want to bring into the company that goes beyond the normal people that you usually hire. So uh, this is where you look out to the minority communities, uh, communities who have the skills but may not have the opportunity to stand out. So we just have to go looking for them. Yeah. So what does it mean to be a DEI organization? I know, I know this Emmanuel Live advocates three pillars. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's a talent, culture, and community. Can you share with us a bit more? So for us, at least the, the three things are very, we are very clear. So from a talent angle, we want to ensure that we have a very diverse talent pool so that we can be able to address all the different societal and uh, country needs. Because, I mean, we operate in uh, at least in 11 markets in Asia and globally, we are huge. We have been around for over 100 years and the community is changing. People are changing. And I think for, and having coming from Canada, it's a very strong Canadian values of inclusion. I think that sets it aside that it's very important to ensure we have the right talent. We have the right opportunities for our community and we are supporting the community, not just by giving a check. I mean, if you see many companies that go and do a CSR event with an NGO and give a nice big check with many zeros. And there you go. That was my CSR event. We don't just do that. We go beyond, beyond the zeros and circles. We actually spend time with them to, to see what we can do to support you directly and eventually bring you in as an employee in the future. And that has really helped to raise the brand awareness and eventually customer awareness. Because I think customers these days, I guess, information easily accessible on, on the internet. They really want to know where they're buying from and why are they buying from certain brands. I mean, we all do that. I mean, uh, see what happened with, uh, was it uh, Volvo before, many years ago? And we suddenly, Volvo was always being sold as the most safest brand, car brand in the world, right? And suddenly they found out some of the safety is being questioned. People just stop yeah. buying. <laughs> <laughs> and, but again, that is the thing, your perception. And uh, like Coke, we all know it is sugar. Mm -hmm. If you drink a lot of that, it kills you. But how they are changing the brand perception and the values and how they're giving back to the community and how they're helping uh, underprivileged and minority communities, suddenly the brand perception changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Apple is another example that I, I frequently quote in case study. You know, if we open up a Windows computer, no, no one will take a look at what we're using. But as soon as someone uses an Apple, you sort of look at them differently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, absolutely. No. You think they're more creative. <laughs> <laughs> you just think they're more even more creative. <laughs> Remember when the days of iMac, when you had all the different. We used to ask people, "Hey, what color is your PC? Is it the pink or the blue one?" <laughs> <laughs> and that's only possible because year after year, Apple has been able to not just innovate, but also disrupt major industry and how people actually, you know, utilize different uh, products and services in those industry. You know, your music, entertainment, mm. you know, uh, MP3 player, and obviously sort of the computer and hardware industry as well. But you know what? A computer is still a computer, right? So it's depending on how you sold the computer. 
you sold the computer that you can do a lot more things that you value. You value music, you value creativity, and it just rode on it, which I think is brilliant. Yeah. Let me try another question. So you, you've touched on a bit of, on this sort of at the macro level. How has this year been in terms of sort of DEI agenda, sort of at a, at a broader level from where you see it? Are you happy with the progress? And what areas, I guess, as a whole, we could do more collectively? So, um, a great question. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm never happy. I'm very impatient all the time. <laughs> you know, for all the, all the baby steps that we do, I still feel we can do a lot more. But definitely as a company, we have done a lot just from the past year alone in terms of our impact. So this, this DEI team that I'm part of is a brand new team. We were just formed like nine, 10 months ago globally. So the team itself is very new. But in, even in this short period of time, there's a lot of uh, impact has been made uh, globally from in terms of participation of uh, gender equality, uh, in terms of leadership and in board memberships, we have a lot more stronger women gender uh, leaders now. Our noise and voice in inclusion on LGBT front has been far reaching. We have started talking a lot more on racial inclusion and disability inclusion. So suddenly it's changing, the narratives are changing. Our recruitment leaders, our, our TAs, our talent recruiters are actively looking at hiring people of all kinds because they have been trained into sensitivity training to making sure that they understand the differences and then they hire people not because of how they are or who they look like, it's what they have. And that is obviously already a big thing. We have done a lot of policy changes and recruitment changes. We are sponsoring a lot of local minority communities globally. You know what, some of these policies might please some people and some may not please others, right? They can't please Mm -hmm. everybody. And I think that is, is the same with any other company that is embarking on the same. There are certain pockets of people that you will not be happy with. And there will be certain people who say that, what about me? How can you do this? You know, this is not in line to what I believe in. So we have to work along it. We have to work along the lines that the world is changing. And please join us on the train. The train is not stopping. The train is moving. So you can either choose to follow the train or hop off the train. Hop off the train, the next station, and hop on another train that's going on your direction. So it is the world. It is. I think a lot of the listeners on, on this podcast will be interested in how do you handle these difficult conversations? How do you influence sponsorships? How do you effect policy changes? And how do you introduce these inclusion themes into your sort of standard HR recruitment processes? And So there's two ways of doing it, Aaron. So one way is top down, right? You just do it and follow okay this is other policy these other changes this is the kpi metrics just follow because it's the brand values by doing that people will do it just because they have no choice and then this is where the passion and the realism when it starts hitting the ground because it is just a policy i've got no choice i have to follow and what happens there is yes you will hit your targets you will be out there winning awards and doing all kinds of stuff But when the person who is leading it leaves the organization, everything crashes because it was not built into the company. Then it's the other way around where you do bottom up. Bottom up in the sense that people totally understand why we are doing this because you have given them an opportunity to speak up and stand out. So suddenly it is now ingrained in the company that this inclusion is real, inclusion is important, storytelling is important. And as some of us, you know, we are active storytellers. And people resonate more with stories than policies. It's, it's easy to do a KPI and a policy, 
but people don't remember it. But you tell a story, people remember stories. So this is where I see real impact happening, where now if the person who's leading it leaves the company, doesn't matter because the values has been ingrained Culture. in the company. Yes. So that is why there's a difference. Mm-hmm. What were some of the initiatives that worked out and what, else, what were some that didn't work? So last uh, two weeks ago, on June 17, was the first time we organized a global uh, afternoon of reflection and learning where as a company, 37,000 employees were given an opportunity of six hours to not work in that afternoon, but to totally immerse themselves into all topics related to DEI. And that was huge. Where no meetings, no work, but they were part of, they could attend a collection of uh, events and panels and conversations and ERG events and all kinds of stuff and learning uh, knowledge for six hours. And that was a big deal that for a company to take time off for six hours just to study. And that really worked. Some things may not work so well. Also, like certain policies that we uh, we were thinking of rolling out doesn't hit the mark because it was not communicated properly. For example, like the, so we rolled out a transgender policy uh, in North America. And a transgender policy uh, basically supports the conversion of the employee should they choose to take the, the, the path including the post-operation and the mental health care support, which I think is brilliant, right? And not everybody does it. But the moment you start wanting to talk about those policies in this part of the world, in Asia, it becomes a challenge. And it becomes a challenge because uh, societal norms doesn't really support. So you can't, sometimes certain policies you can't roll out globally. So you have to do one part first, and then you need to have individual conversations and convincing and telling people why this is important. And that plays most of my work, actually. Mm-hmm. So having that readiness and, I guess, different enablers, which should reinforce your initiatives, are quite important. You know what? We have to, if you are doing this work, we have to be prepared for many yeses and many noes. And it's normal. And I mean, the, when you get many noes, the noes actually is a challenge for you to make sure that we manage to convert that to a yes. Or... Is there a way of listening to the nose? Again, we must never ever discriminate people who tell you no. That is also a form of discrimination. <laughs> so when people tell you no, talk to them and find out why are they saying no. There may be a reason to it. And let's find a middle ground. I pick up a couple of interesting uh, metrics uh, from the from the corporate website. A couple of goals that are quite bold. The first one is to have 30% of your leadership roles represented by BIBOP, Black, uh, Indigenous, mm-hmm. and people of color by 2025. And the second one is to have your uh, annual graduate hire of up mm-hmm. to at least 25%. What's the progress on those? And are we going to see similar uh, metrics sort of at the at the Asia level, or are there already similar metrics that are tracking your progress already? So uh, been very successful in the US. So we have already been working with a lot of the uh, black universities and black schools and in, in trying to get the right kind of graduates coming in. Uh, we have the uh, MLK scholars uh, supporting for the internship. And we're looking at our current uh, headcounts and the current uh, resources to make sure that we are supporting uh, of color and uh, black indigenous uh, employees as well. And it is working successfully. We are on track uh, in trying to achieve the targets. In Asia, the racial targets have not uh, set yet. We are still looking at the gender and we have moved up quite a bit. Uh, in, across Asia, AVPs are around 40% uh, women. 
and over 30% uh, VPs and it's getting higher, which is which is great from a gender perspective. Again, Asia has always been later on the game, right? We were a bit slower mm -hmm. in adopting. So the next we are looking at for the next few years is again, gender will continue, LGBT inclusion and awareness. Racial, instead of putting targets, you're going to start having more conversations mm -hmm. because the perception of race is different to every country. How we define race in China is, dif is different to how we define race in the Philippines and in Singapore and in Malaysia because race is different. So how do you do a, a hard plunge? What is race in the region? So we had to go on a more local granular level. The other targets we are looking at is eventually having uh, targets for hiring people with disabilities to Asia as well. And for other organizations who want to become, I guess, as good as you are in terms of approaching the DEI agenda, how can they realize it and you know, how can they go about it? You mentioned that word already, realize. <laughs> I think that's the first bit, the realization that it is important. The world is changing. And if you want to be part of this changing world, you have to realize that you have to do it. So that's one. First is realizing. And second is nobody is expecting you to know everything. So seek help. Seek help. You can seek help from other organizations who are a bit ahead in DEI. The thing about DEI, I noticed this, we are a very small community in Asia who really like to help each other. So like me, uh, I'm part of this uh, community of DNI professionals here in Hong Kong. There are about 80 organizations in a WhatsApp group, interestingly, and these are all DEI practitioners in Hong Kong, and we always help each other out. You know, hey, how do you do this? Hey, how do you do that? We meet for coffee, we, and we sit together and we get it done because it is no longer about sharing brand stuff. You know, it is secret, I can't share because we are looking at it from a totality of changing community mm -hmm. overall, yep. not just your brand. Yeah. We all have to work together. That's the only way. That's the only way because, yeah, that is success. Yeah. Hey, I, one last question I want to ask you because you, you brought this up about this top-down and sort of bottom-up implementation approach. For some people uh, who, who are on this podcast, they might want to influence or persuade a leadership that, you know, DEI is important. We need to do something about it. But the leadership team might not necessarily see it as an important, important agenda. For those people, how would you advise them? So when I helped to form the DNI Council in AXA, my previous employer, and that was how it happened. We were just a few of us who sat together over coffee and we realized that we need to do something to help the community. So what we did is we put together a proposal of the different elements of DEI and we actually seek to present into senior leadership. And you know what? No senior management will say no because these are people in the company who feel strongly about representing communities who are underrepresented and they are doing this out of their own personal time and not impacting their work. And companies and leadership will actually appreciate it because, oh, wow, there's actually somebody who wants to do our work because <laughs> they'll be happy to let you do it. So that is how we started off in AXA, where it was formed by the grassroots. They formed the committee. They formed the DEI council. It was supported by the leadership and they were given funding. And then they became very big and popular. And uh, in, in, in manual life, it was a bit different because we felt it was already important from day one. So it was already set up in the organization. So when I advise people now, I advise the same thing. Have a few people, get a few allies on the ground who thinks this is important, get together and put a proposal and go and propose to your leaders because these allies usually are the very influential ones in the company. 
So use these people and circle of influence to influence senior leadership. Mm. It usually yeah. works. That's great word of advice there. Hey, thank you so much for your time, Sudesh. And it's great to have you on this podcast. And I think uh, myself and the listeners on this podcast have learned a lot on this DEI topic and how we can go about changing the world. <laughs> thank you so much for having me, Aaron. And anytime, if you think any of your listeners want to Find out more and more than happy. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. We can have a chat. And where can people find you, Sudesh? LinkedIn, Sudesh T. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Thank you for listening to Transformative Purpose. In each episode, we talk to inspirational people who are making our world better. Make sure to like, rate, and review. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from the show. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, if you have questions or feedback, you can reach out at aaronpeng.co.